0: So good. Awesome. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight. Uh, I know it's midterm season, or some of you are just on the edge of midterm, so I really appreciate you coming out. Really glad to be here. Um, and at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And so, what that means is that we think that uh, whether you're having a great week, you're doing super well, or you're having a terrible week and you're constantly followed around by your failures, we think that God's grace in Jesus is the most important thing to talk about. And that's what REF is all about. And this semester as we sought to do that, uh, we've been going through a series in the Psalms called Songs That Shape Us. Uh, And the Psalms were songs that were written uh, for ancient Israel, that they sang every week in the temple. And there were songs that were meant to teach them about God, to teach them about themselves, and to teach them about how they relate to each other. And these have been used the same way throughout the history of the church. They're, they're songs that we sing together. They meet us where we are, and then they take us where we need to go. And tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 119. Um, and if you're familiar with the Bible, Psalm 119 is actually the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, so buckle up. This one's going to be about three hours. <laughs> Hope you're excited. It's going to be lit. Um, Actually, no, I picked eight verses out of this, so don't worry. It'll be the normal amount of time. But yeah, so this is uh, 176 verses, 22 stanzas, each made up of eight verses. And each stanza begins with a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's like, it's kind of, it's an acrostic. Um, So if you look in your Bible, it'll have the different names. Like it'll say Aleph, Bet, all those different things. Those are just Hebrew letters. Like, it's not just a random name, so you don't really need to know that, but I went to seminary, so I wanted to tell you about it. Um, but yeah, so this is the longest chapter in the Bible, uh, but the psalm is also a love poem. It's a love poem about the Bible, and it contains some serious, like, teenage, like, drama-level gushing about God's Word. In verse 14, it says, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches verse 20, it says, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. And then in verse 131, it says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. And then in verse 136, it says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. So what do we do with this sort of like gushing about God's words? What do we do with that? Uh, for me, this kind of sounds a little bit like a John Mayer song, but in the Bible, right? Like the Bible is a wonderland or something. Sorry, that was a lame joke. Um, but when we read this stuff, it can feel a little bit like, I don't know if you guys have a friend who like really loves YouTube clips or something like that. I've been in the situation all the time where you're just like sitting there talking to someone, and they're like, Oh my gosh, I just saw the funniest YouTube clip. It was amazing. It's super funny. You have to see it. And then you're just sitting there like in a public place. They pull out their phone and they make you watch it. And they're like watching for your reaction. And it's just like, oh, this is so funny. And it's like totally a thing that you had to be there for, right? Like you don't get it, but you just feel like you have to get there for them. Sometimes that's how we can feel when we read these words. When we read someone who's so excited about God's word, we're like, yeah, like it's great that you're excited. But like about that, about the Bible, uh, so maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're convinced of the Christian faith. You would call yourself a Christian. Uh, you know God's word. You love God's word. Um, but, you know, there are parts of the Bible that you love, and there are parts that are a little bit weird. Like when you, when you hear these things that I read earlier, you might be thinking, okay, has this guy ever read Leviticus? Like, yeah, sure, there are parts of God's word that are beautiful, but there are other parts that are pretty boring. Like this guy, we're saying that this guy delights in rigorous purity laws. He longs for more instruction on how to properly prepare an animal for sacrifice. Like what? How can you get excited about that? But maybe you're here and you're you're unconvinced. You're not sure if Christianity is for you. And this hits you a little bit different. Maybe the idea of loving the Bible is hard for you. Isn't the Bible just like a culturally regressive book? There's so much violence, so much sacrifice, so many rules that you have to follow so much. It it looks like sexism. And hasn't the Bible been used to repress women? Hasn't it been used to repress minorities? It seems like getting this obsessed with the Bible might create problems. Like when people are too into the Bible like this, it creates problems. So whether you're here uh, and you're convinced of Christianity or you're unconvinced, uh, we're going to be asking this question that I think we can all relate to. What's so great about God's word? What's so great about it? What's so great about the Bible? So i got three, three points for us tonight. First, God's word teaches us what is good. Second, God's word is brutally honest about our condition. And third, God's word directs us to our only hope. So I'm going to read the passage for us, and uh, then we can get started. So Psalm 119, verse 33 through 40, starting in verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life In your ways, confirm to your servant, your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that um, you speak. And Lord, you, you also speak about your word. And I pray that as we look at what you have to say about your word, that we would uh, pay attention to it. And Lord, that we would um, bring honestly how we feel about your word, that we would not be ashamed of where we're at. um, Because Lord, you meet us there. So I pray that you would open our eyes um, that you would give us attentive hearts and ears as we uh, come to your word. All these things I ask in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So what's so great about God's word? So first, God's word teaches us what is good. If you would look with me to verse 33, it says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. So we see in this section, uh, and then going on in 34 and 35, all of these begin with uh, this, this imperative verb. It says, Teach me, O Lord, give me understanding, lead me in the paths of your commandments. We see here that the writer of this psalm wants to know God's word more. He wants to know more. He asks God to teach him. And he asks him to teach him so that he can keep God's words until the end. And so throughout this passage, he's going to be using a lot of different words uh, to refer to God's word. He says in verse thirty three statutes, verse thirty four he talks about God's law. In verse thirty five, he talks about God's commandments. All of those are just different words for the Bible. They're different words for God's word. We see in verse 34 that not only does he want to be taught God's word, he wants an understanding of God's word deep down in his heart. He wants understanding so that he can keep the law of God and observe it with his whole heart. He doesn't just want to know things about God. He wants it to sink so deep into his heart that, that it invades everything that he does. He wants to be shaped by God's law. And we see here in in verses 33 and 34 a desire to be more and more shaped by God's word. Whenever uh, the, the writer here sees that something in his life is out of accord with God's word, he understands that his life is the thing that needs to change and not God's word. He understands that God's word is the standard that his life needs to be Conform to, and I think we tend to get this the other other way around sometimes, don't we? Whenever we see something that uh, either confuses us or confronts us, we tend to uh, kind of want to run the opposite way. So, what do we do when we see a discrepancy between God's word and our lives? I think we can do one of three things. Uh, many of us, when we see something in God's word that is confusing or difficult for us, We ignore it. We read something in a part of the Bible that we don't really like, and we're like, well, don't know what that's about, but I'll just go read this other stuff, right? Or maybe we don't ignore it. Maybe we explain it away. This is a particular thing that uh, professional God talkers and preachers like me like to do. When we see something that's uncomfortable in the scripture, we try to explain it away so that we can assure ourselves that we're okay. We say, well, well, of course, God couldn't be asking that of me. He wouldn't ask me to do that sort of thing. That's that's just a cultural difference that we see here in the scripture. He couldn't be asking me to do that today. So we ignore it or we explain it away. Then third and finally, we, we can reject it. Sometimes when we see something in the Bible that makes us uncomfortable, we just outright reject it. We can say, you know, this is backwards, and I don't want anything to do with it. And while these are three different responses that I think all of us probably do to varying degrees, I think they all are united in one thing. All of them assume that there is a standard by which the Bible must be judged. All of them assume that we have to declare that the Bible is okay by some good that exists elsewhere. We might place ourselves or our cultural perspective, maybe our experiences, over the Bible, and and we we see whether the Bible lives up to it. But that's not what we see in this passage. We see rather than us putting ourselves over God's word and evaluating it, God's word is over us, and it evaluates us. God's word teaches us what is good. There's not a good that exists apart from it. Without God's word, we, we truly can't know what is good. So what does this mean for us? I think pretty simply, two things. Uh, First off, we don't get to define what is good. We don't get to define what is good. God's word is clear on what is good and what is evil. We don't get to do things just because we want to. We do what God's word says. We're not kings and queens of our own life, figuring out how to call the shots, doing whatever we want. God tells us what is good in his word. His word sets the standard that we must conform to. But not only do we not get to define what is good, I think there's, there's good news here that we don't have to define what is good. Isn't it good news that God tells us what is good? That we don't have to start from ground, like start from the bottom every single time and figure out what is good? We don't have to spend all this time looking inward and find out what our truth is. Like, finding our own truth and trying to align ourselves with it, that's that's exhausting. No wonder we're, like, the most anxious generation ever. Because we think that we have to define what is good. We think that we constantly have to justify what we're doing. The good news here is that God didn't leave us to figure out things on our own. He speaks and tells us what is good. So God's word teaches us what is good. But secondly, we see that God's word is brutally honest about our condition. Brutally honest about our condition. Look with me to verse 36. It says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And this word here, uh, incline, uh, literally in the original language, it says, cause my heart to stretch out. Stretch my heart out. Move my heart in a different direction. And in saying this, he, he's saying that this, this good way of God's testimony does not come natural to him. What comes natural is more selfish gain. We have to pray and ask God to change our hearts. Our hearts are oriented in the complete opposite direction of what is good. You see, our problem isn't just that we don't know what is good. Our problem is that we see it and we run completely in the opposite direction. Our problem's a lot worse than that. And then also in verse 37, it says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So we see here also that we're, our eyes naturally go towards what they shouldn't. We see a request for God to turn our eyes away from looking at things that we shouldn't look at. And these word, this word here, worthless things, uh In the Old Testament, that word is actually it could be translated like vanity sometimes, but a lot of the times it 's associated with idolatry it 's associated with uh how in in the old testament uh israel god 's people they were constantly going after other gods they lived in a world that was surrounded with with people who were worshiping all these various gods it could be a sun god, um, it could be you know, a fertility god. They, they were surrounded by people worshiping anything other than God. And this was a tendency, it was a struggle that they had. They were constantly going after these other gods. And here we see that this is not just a problem that's out there, it's a problem that's within us. It's not just that people in the history of God's people went after idols. What we're seeing here is that we go after idols. There's something in us that is oriented away from God. Uh, theologian uh, John Calvin commented on this passage. Uh, and he said, The natural corruption of man is so great that he seeks for anything rather than what is right until he is turned by the power of God to new obedience and thus begins to be inclined to that which is good. It's pretty dark, right? Like, our situation is so bad that we couldn't change on our own. We couldn't just decide to change and do it. The natural corruption of man is so great that we look for anything other than what is right. And this is not just a theologian saying this. Actually, the Bible speaks this way as well. In Genesis 6, God says about man, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. It's pretty dark. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then Ephesians 2 says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath. You see, the bad news of this section is that we are totally oriented away from that which is good. Our problem is not just that we don't know what is good. Our problem is that we see it, and we run in the complete opposite direction. C.S. Lewis said that uh, mankind is not just a fallen creature that needed a couple uh, fixer-ups there in a couple places. He said that fallen man is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And that's what we are. We know what is good, but we turn and run in the opposite direction. And the good news here is that God shows us this. He speaks honestly. that His word is brutally honest about this. So how is that good news? So uh, when my wife and I lived in St. Louis, my um, wife Molly, back there by the way, uh, we were members at a gym called uh, Planet Fitness. Anybody Planet Fitness here, been there, done that? Uh, if you don't know about Planet Fitness, let me just kind of set the stage for you. Uh, Planet Fitness is kind of like the Wild West of gyms. <laughs> Like, it is, it's like a gym that, like, weirdly doesn't try hard. I don't, like, I don't get it. It's so, it's $10 a month. Everything in there is, like, purple everywhere. Like, it's just, it's not an exactly great environment. They have uh, free bagels on Monday. Uh, and then, my personal favorite, they have free pizza on Fridays, which is pretty cool. And then uh, they have this other thing called a Lunk Alarm. Uh, where, if you are in there and you 're like lifting weights and you grunt or anything like that, someone at the front desk hits this button and it says "Lunk alarm and it goes off like it 's shaming people who are grunting like that it 's kind of like the anti gym gym in any case, Molly now remembers there it was kind of a perfect gym for me because i 'm not a huge fan of working out, um, but we were training for a half marathon at one point, and we wanted to do some sort of like weight lifting to kind of try and boost our performance a little bit, whatever. Um, I don't know how to say that. Uh, so we started out on this, uh, the seated leg curl machine. Has anybody ever done one of those? Uh, if you've ever sat on a seated leg curl machine, you know, there's a lot of moving parts. (laughs) Like it is, it's not super intuitive. At least it wasn't for me. And I, I've never really been much of a weightlifter. So I had really no idea what I was doing when I sat down on this thing. But you can't go into something like that, being like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure it out. You have to go in with confidence. So I went in with confidence. I sat down on this thing. I put a certain amount, and I'm like doing the leg curls, and like, I mean, I'm just moving a lot, and it's, I'm, clearly this is wrong. And then, you know, I sat down, and I'm like, okay, it's kind of, it makes me think of that Michael Scott quote, like, I went up to it, and I knew exactly what to do. But in a much more real sense, I had absolutely no idea what to do. That was me on this machine. And as I'm doing this, kind of making a fool of myself, this like enormous jacked guy comes up and he's like been watching me this whole time. He comes up to me and he's like, oh uh, yeah, hey man, uh, that's not the way you're supposed to use this machine. You, you mind if I help you? And I'm like, I mean, yeah, of course, whatever. And he like shows me how to do this machine. And he, you know, we get it fit and then it works, it works well for me. And it was like the most shameful experience of my life. Friends, that, that is God's word does for us what this jacked guy at the gym did for me. And it's not always pleasant. It's not always pleasant to be told that you're doing it wrong. And in fact, what the Bible says, it doesn't say that we're doing it wrong. It says you are wrong. It's more than just what you do. There's something wrong about you fundamentally. It confronts us with how we really are. And though it's painful to be shown that we are wrong, it's infinitely better than continuing on thinking that we're okay. Like, imagine if that guy just let me keep going. Like, I might have, like, one giant calf and the other one messed up. Like, it would not have worked out well. You see, we're a danger to ourselves and others when we don't understand how broken we actually are. But also, we need to see this brutally honest picture of ourselves if we're ever going to take God's grace seriously. At Ruf, we're all about God's grace, and if we're ever going to take God's grace seriously, we need to understand how much of a sinner we are. And so maybe you're here tonight, and uh, you might be have been a Christian for some time, but the idea, you know, when we talk about the gospel or we talk about grace, that doesn't really do anything for you. You might feel spiritually dry. Maybe sometimes when you think about it, you're like, you know, I know it's supposed to be good news that Jesus came and died for me. But if I'm honest, I just, I can't feel it. I don't feel it. Well, maybe the place for you to start is recognizing the depth of your own sin. Could it be that you've never truly understood how much you need Jesus? See, the more aware we are of our sin, the more excited we're going to be about the salvation we're given in Jesus. We can't enjoy these popular verses like John 3.16 unless we understand our sin. It's not a big deal that God came to save us unless we actually needed it. And the news of this passage is that we actually needed it. So God's word is brutally honest. And next we see God's word directs us to our only hope. Look with me to verse 38. It says, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. So we see here in verse 38 that uh, the writer is asking for further confirmation. He's asking for further confirmation of all these things that he's been given already. He knows that God's word is true. He knows that God's word is brutally honest about his sin. But he finds himself asking God for more says, confirm to me your promise that you may be feared. And this word feared here, it just means relating to God properly. In the Old Testament, it talks about the fear of God as the beginning of all wisdom. It just means understanding who God is and who you are in relation to him. So in order to understand God, who God is and how we relate to him, he needs God to confirm his promise to him. He asks for more. And then in verse 39, he says, turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. We see here that the writer is saying that he's feeling insecure. He's he's dreading reproach. And he asks God to give him security. And he understands here that in order to be secure, he needs God to continue to speak to him. God is the only one that can give him the security that he longs for. There's no hope apart from God. And we see this clearly in verse 40. It says, behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. You see, the only hope for people like you and me, the only hope for people who are sinful, the only hope for people who are wholly oriented away from God is that God would come to us and give us life. Unless God does that, we have no chance. The only hope is that God comes down to us. The Bible says we're, we're utterly dead apart from God giving us life. And the book of Genesis tells the story of a man who actually understood this, a man named Abraham. And God had promised Abraham that he was going to be the father of many nations. And not only that, he promised Abraham that he was going to right all of the wrongs in the world through his family. Imagine if God gave you a promise like that. That's, that's significant. It's that's a big deal. But the problem was that Abraham was almost a hundred years old when he received this promise. And even more than that, his wife was 90 years old and she was barren. They couldn't have kids. And God told Abraham, Your descendants, your physical actual descendants, are gonna be as numerous as the stars of the sky. So naturally, when Abraham gets this promise, he he, he has some questions for God. How are you gonna do this? I'm a hundred years old, my wife is ninety. He had no hope. So he asked God for confirmation. How am I to know that this is going to happen? And God responds not by rebuking him, but he responds by giving him the confirmation that he asked for. He responds by way of a covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is it's a really important concept in the Bible. You see it all throughout the Bible. And kind of a quick, simple definition of a covenant. A covenant is something that is more personal than a contract and more permanent than a normal relationship. So more personal than a contract, more permanent than a normal relationship. And this is a way that Abraham, when God made this covenant with him, he would have immediately understood it. Because this is a way that kings, rulers, or heads of families would make agreements with one another in his time. And so God tells Abraham to do the various things you're supposed to do in a covenant. He tells him to take a heifer, a goat, a ram, and a turtle dove and to slaughter them and to set them a little ways apart, like we would on either side of this row. And in in this world, in, in the covenant, what you would do is the two parties making this agreement together would walk through the middle of these animals. And in walking through the middle, they were essentially saying, if I break this covenant, may I be torn in two like these animals. And it was the highest form of promise that you could have in this culture. It was more personal than a contract, more permanent than a normal relationship. And after Abraham sets all these animals aside, we actually see that God causes him to go into a deep sleep. The time when they're supposed to walk through and they're supposed to make this covenant together, Abraham's taking a nap. But then the story actually tells us that God walks through the pieces alone. He walked through the pieces as if to say the only way that you can have hope is if I take both sides of this agreement on myself. Abraham, I know you. I know you. I know your people. I know what you're like. And I know that the only way that you can have the hope and the security that you long for is if I take this on myself. If you break this covenant, I'll take the fall, not you. You see, like Abraham, we're as good as dead on our own. Our hearts are naturally inclined away from that which is good. The Bible tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're without hope unless God comes to us. We're without hope unless he gives us life. Our only hope is what what we see in this psalm in verse 40. It says, in your righteousness, give me life. That's our only hope. But the good news is that in Jesus, God has done this. God has given dead people life in Jesus. Jesus, the word made flesh, comes to us and gives us life. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 uh, sets this up really nicely. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Even though we were dead, even though we were turned away from God completely, even though every thought of our heart was only evil continually, God made us alive together in Christ. Jesus, the one who is righteous, the one who is life in and of himself, came to earth and died for us so that people like us who are dead could be given his life. This is our only hope. And thankfully, Jesus offers himself to us. So let's look to him. Let's pray.